0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. President Biden has set a goal of conserving 30% of our land and waters in the next decade to sustain essential biodiversity.
1: If we lose species, we lose the ecosystems, the intricate web of life that sustains nature, and sustains us as part of nature.
2: Yet some are worried about how the program will work when so much land is privately owned. The intent is not to take away anybody's private property. The intent is to reward good stewardship and, and continue providing the goods and services our economy needs to thrive. So
0: what are the steps to ensure an equitable approach that accomplishes the conservation goals?
2: You know, the
3: Biden administration has put out their framework and now the next step really is to engage with those communities across the country. You know, what are the priorities? What are the obstacles? And how do we overcome those together?
0: A deep dive into the 30 by 30 conservation plan. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. The IPCC recently released a new scientific report ahead of the upcoming climate summit in Glasgow. The headlines are familiar and scary. Human-caused climate disruption is everywhere now, and it's accelerating. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres called the report Code Red for Humanity. Fossil-fuel droughts, heat waves, intense rainfall, and all the associated impacts we are experiencing will become more intense and frequent. But with immediate action, the report lays out possibilities for reducing future harm. It's not too late to make a difference if governments act together quickly. We'll have more about the latest ipcc science in our show next week now we turn to a promising path for climate progress conserving enough land and water to protect earth's biodiversity and we humans that depend on it one million animal and plant species are now threatened with extinction paula ehrlich is ceo of the eo wilson biodiversity foundation and co-founder of the half earth project which advocates for conserving half of the land and sea to safeguard most of the planet's biodiversity.
1: Extinction usually unfolds offstage, so these huge numbers made a big splash because they were they were kind of a surprise. But but we started to pay attention. There there are two things that were happening there that were sharpening our pencil on this. One, gobsmacking science. And two, a shift in consciousness, right? Because when this whole, this story hit the page, it mattered because somewhere in the core of our humanity, we recognize these creatures, great and small. Even when we're touched by their story, we feel an extraordinary compassion, maybe even a moral conviction to act to protect them. But here's the other thing about the gobsmacking science and why it's gobsmacking. It matters because the species of our planet don't exist in isolation. The the answer is if we lose species, we lose the ecosystems, the intricate web of life that sustains nature and sustains us as part of nature. Human beings are connected with all of life. The organisms that surround us in such beautiful profusion have evolved over 3.8 billion years to create an exquisite and careful balance of interconnected resilience. And knowing this, really coming to know and understand this is critically important. As the namesake of our foundation, E.O. Wilson, once wrote, the more closely we identify ourselves with the rest of life, the more quickly we'll be able to discover the sources of human sensibility and acquire the knowledge on which an enduring ethic, a sense of preferred direction, can be built. So in creating the the half-Earth goal... E.O. Wilson was was inspiring the conservation movement to move from a process which has been somewhat successful in addressing the extinction crisis to a goal. And, and having a goal is a big deal. It's not just important conceptually, it's also important inspirationally, right? Because if you look at history, this is a sort of ambition, it's the sort of moonshot that drives humanity. You know, like, you probably remember when John F. Kennedy announced the space program, he did not say to the American people, by the end of this decade, we'll make good progress towards landing a man on the moon and bringing him home. He didn't say we'll made good progress. He said, by the end of this decade, we'll send a 300-foot rocket on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body 240,000 miles away and then return it safely to Earth. And our collective imagination exploded, right? We can do it, right? So that, that's the problem we face and also what Half Earth is about. It's a, a goal that's meant to inspire us in the same way.
0: So that Half Earth, I remember when that concept came out and uh, like, wow, OK, that's bold. Half, that's that's big. And that's now kind of evolved into, you know, 30 by 30, you know, several states, the Biden administration, uh, state of California have developed this 30 by 30 framework. So tell us what that is and and how that can be implemented. And what it it would do?
1: In 2016, E.O. Wilson wrote a book called *Half Earth*, and in that book was a sort of a promise that if we protected half the Earth's land and sea, that we would manage sufficient habitat to safeguard the bulk of biodiversity. That we'd solve what E.O. Wilson calls the next big thing—the thing we need to turn our attention to beyond the changing climate—and that is the extinction crisis. Um, Extinction is a crisis because the extinction rate is currently a thousand times higher than any time in human history. And it's estimated that we'll lose half our planet species by the end of the century. So the book Half Earth and the Half Earth Project are about solving that problem. Now, it's pretty intuitive that the number of species that a, a habitat can sustainably support increases with size. And that's why we set forth uh, these ambitious targets, like 30 by 30. And currently we have about 15% of lands across the globe protected. 15%, the current amount of global protection is not good. The math would predict we'll lose half of all species by the end, before the end of the century. Now 30% is better and so, that's what inspires the goal of 30 by 30.
0: So, doubling that in one decade, that sounds pretty ambitious. And what does that actually mean? Does that mean no roads? Is this humans stay out? You know, this is nature's place? Or how do humans fit into that?
1: That's the big, been the biggest challenge is to help people imagine what it would look like for themselves, for our planet, for species, and for many aspects of our ultimate sustainability. If the goal is to protect the web of life, for all of life to sustainably endure, then whatever our target is, 30 by 30 or half, where we pick to prioritize for conservation becomes particularly important. And you asked, are these roadless places? Are these places without people? They are all of those things and none of those things. It's because all not all places are equally effective at protecting biodiversity. Each species has its own important place in the world that we need to kind of keep in mind. So let's say we determine conservation priorities based upon the most charismatic species or the most beautiful vistas in our favorite places. That's wonderful, but it may also favor the species in already well-studied places over those that are less well-known and could perversely increase overall species extinction. So we might lose important strands that are holding together the web of life without even knowing it. So the next big thing, the the moonshot mission from the moon is to completely catalog and map all the biodiversity on Earth so that we don't make that mistake.
0: Are you trying to conserve nature for nature's sake or nature for humans' benefit? We live in an age where it is very anthropocentric, human-centric, right? And humans are kind of clearly dominating and, uh, with, with disregard uh, of other species. Is this, because this seems like this really comes up against our human centrism, which is nature's there for the exploitation and benefit of, of humans. Are you asking for a kind of reordering of that human centrism?
1: Not at all. Um, what I think we need is a change of consciousness that allows us to fully understand that we are part of nature, one species of many, and that we need to work together to support the species of our planet in order to inevitably support ourselves. That web of life that I alluded to, that I spoke to, we need to understand it. We need to map the geospatial location of all the species on our planet, including ourselves, at a a high enough resolution to inform what places offer the most effective path forward for protection of endangered species and endangered ecosystems. And our hope is that the science of the Half-Earth Project will transform our understanding of the world and what we need to do to care for it.
0: When the Biden administration announced its 30 by 30 plan in January, Montana Senator Steve Daines warned of efforts to lock up lands, which will hurt Montana's farmers and ranchers and kill jobs. How do you address those fears?
1: Well, my sense is it, that that there's no black and white answer that would predictably tell us that, that this particular kind of activity will be lost or gained as a result of focusing on conservation. Um, In fact, in many cases, uh, current usage of land, uh, if if focused or managed in the right way, can sustainably support species, both on the large and on the small scale. I think the important thing is for people to have the information they need to help with their decision making about how they manage those places and whether or not their activities would, uh, in fact, cause damage, or could be used—that information could be used to sustainably support their place. I mentioned um, our Half Earth project map, and and on that map. We've developed something that we call a Species Protection Index, an SPI, which is kind of like a FICA score for biodiversity. So right now you can go on the Half-Earth Project map and see an SPI national report card for the protected places of every nation. You can get an SBI score of from zero to 100, depending upon how many species groups are protected in your country and how they contribute globally to overall species protection. Um, I'll give you an example. So Paraguay has an SBI that's right around average for most countries at about 45. And it got that score by protecting 13% of its country. Here's the thing, Ghana also protected 13% of its land, but has a blockbuster SPI of almost 79. So what does Paraguay need to do to raise its SPI and better protect the species of its place? Um, Well, the national report cards would show where to go next, right? These places um, are, on the map with a a possible configuration of additional areas that should be priorities for protection to contribute more to the conservation of species habitat and increase SBI beyond the current protection.
0: That's interesting. So it's it's not a one to one. You can preserve a smaller lot of land that is biodiversity rich, or could be a larger amount of land that perhaps has less biodiversity. How do you define conserved land? Does it have to be protected wilderness area? Can it be a working ranch with some conservation easement?
1: It absolutely can be, and and should be, <laughs> um, inclusive of ranches that are being sustainably managed or. Uh, people that are uh, earnestly creating easements um, on private property that can usefully contribute. Um, in many cases, it's easy to think about large landscapes because we know they do such a good job, but even smaller landscapes where they can connect, create corridors for wildlife um, or uh, sustainably protect people. Uh, particular areas of species richness or species endemism, um, places where those species exist nowhere else, going to be extraordinarily important contributions to the overall global effort to protect biodiversity.
0: Paula Ehrlich is CEO of the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation and co-founder of the Half Earth Project. Paula, you talked about biodiversity as the next big thing after climate change. Well, how is biodiversity loss connected to the climate emergency?
1: Well, in many ways, big and small. Um, we know both that climate affects species uh, habitats and that shift in climate change as it affects those habitats has, can have an extraordinary effect on species that are already constrained by our human impact on those habitats. The climate in some ways pushes that math around what what our impact is on the planet and how we need to care for it in a way that um, can be really difficult for us. But I think right now, um, more and more people are realizing that if we protect the living world, the species of our planet, that we will also protect the non-living world, the the inevitable effects of climate change. But if we just focus on the non-living world, we may lose both. And it's interesting to see as climate activists lean in on solutions, how many of those are inevitably connected with conservation of species and ecosystems, because they inevitably provide the foundation of support to solve the bigger problems that we're facing with climate.
0: Paula Ehrlich is CEO of the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation and the co-founder of the Half Earth Project. Paula, thanks for coming on Climate One.
1: Thank you, Greg. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the goal to conserve 30% of the nation's land and water in the next decade. This episode was underwritten in part by the Resources Legacy Fund. Coming up, how the private sector can play a role in conserving land and water.
2: The challenge of ecological degradation is so large and so vast. This is going to take a whole of society effort. It's not something that government can solve alone. So engaging the private sector, be it you know individual landowners or large institutions is gonna be absolutely critical to the, the success of this initiative.
0: What's up next when Climate One continues. When President Biden first announced his 30 by 30 plan, it drew immediate criticism from some rural parts of the country where much of the land is in farming and ranching. In states like Nebraska and Kansas, where nearly the entire state is under private ownership, some have raised concerns about where and how the federal government plans to set aside those acres. Climate One's Arianna Brocious has more.
4: Conservation organizations across the country have lauded President Biden's executive order announcing his intent to conserve 30 percent of the nation's land and waters by 2030. But in Nebraska, Governor Pete Ricketts took the opposite tact, issuing his own executive order directing state agencies to, quote, resist and prevent the federal government's attempt to usurp state authority as they work toward the 30 by 30 goal. Here he is speaking to the Rural Radio Network. There are
0: not a lot of details right now about the 30 by 30 plan. and That's what is so concerning that the administration has announced this, but again, has no authority to do it and has given no details about how it would be implemented.
4: Ricketts went on statewide tour, urging farmers and ranchers to be on their guard against what he called a federal land grab.
0: Again, look at Nebraska, where you have got 97 percent of land is private. And then you put 30 percent of that into conservation. That's going to really be devastating
4: for our small towns and rural communities. That view is shared by many farmers and ranchers wary of the federal government. Kyler Miller-Shasky is a fifth-generation wheat farmer in southwest Kansas and vice president of the Kansas Wheat Growers Association.
5: See, I think I think knowing kind of how they're going to choose the acres, what that's going to look like, is it going to be a, yep, sorry, these acres were chosen in a domain, they belong to the government now. That's, that's... <laughs> That's not going to go over too well with a bunch of farmers. Now, if it's voluntary sign-up, there may be some people who may be like, no, this is something that I want to do.
4: He says farmers already do a lot to take care of their land.
5: You know, we, we care about the climate. We care about conservation. Um, we never call it, uh, I think uh, one of the new ones going around is uh, carbon sequestration. We've been doing that for a long time. We just call it soil health, not carbon sequestration.
4: He wants to know if acres currently in conservation programs will count toward the 30% goal. He's put some of his acres into a local conservation program, planting grass instead of crops in the low spots in his field that flood when it rains. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack has said the government will support local and federal voluntary conservation programs in line with the 30 by 30 goal. Yet Larkin Powell, a conservation biologist and board member of the Nebraska Wildlife Society, points out the inherent tension between conservation interests and private property.
6: So in Nebraska, if you're going to do conservation, it has to happen on private land. Those private lands hold our public resources, right? The water that falls on those is what we end up drinking. The wildlife on those lands are actually publicly owned. And we all have this vested interest then in what happens on those private lands.
4: Climate disruption has already affected growing seasons and increased extreme weather events. As farmers deal with increased uncertainty due to climate change, Powell says the federal push for conservation and biodiversity can offer additional support.
6: The 30 by 30 plan gives us more impetus that we need to be protecting more of those private lands and that we need to put more public resources, as in money, to incentivize conservation on those private lands. So that should be a good thing for farmers.
4: Powell says many farmers and ranchers rely on those federal conservation payments as a portion of their overall income. In a part of the country where so much land is in monocrop agriculture, Powell says it will be key to focus the 30 by 30 efforts on building large enough swaths of habitat and corridors to sustain a diverse range of species.
6: Not just randomly conserving any 80 acres out on the landscape, but thinking about if we're going to spend money on 80 acres, where should we... Put that money.
4: And he says he worries about the long-term success of the goal and how economics in the future will play out, given past precedent.
6: Ten years ago, high ethanol prices caused people to take their contract out um, and pay the penalty to remove it so they could plant corn uh, instead of leaving their land in the conservation reserve
4: program. Wheat farmer Kyler Milershasky says he and other farmers hope 30 by 30 will use what already exists.
5: If we can expand and improve on existing programs, that will be immensely more accepted, um, beneficial, and I think efficient than trying to start a whole another program from
4: scratch. Earlier this year, Secretary Vilsack announced that the USDA will more directly target the Conservation Reserve Program on climate change mitigation, rolling out new incentives and higher payment rates for farmers to encourage participation. For Climate One, I'm Arianna Brocious.
0: At the beginning of this year, the Biden administration announced its 30-by-30 plan, later dubbed America the Beautiful. I invited three guests to discuss the initiative. Catherine Semser, is Research Fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center. Jennifer Norris is Deputy Secretary for Biodiversity and Habitat with the California Natural Resources Agency. And Woody Lee is Executive Director of Utah Dine Bekeya, a conservation group focused mostly on Bears Ears National Monument. In October of 2020, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced his plan to protect 30% of California by 2030. I asked Jennifer Norris what prompted that.
3: The 30 by 30 commitment was part of a larger uh, nature-based solutions executive order, really recognizing both uh, the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis and how important conservation was to both of those efforts. So the executive order contains a lot of other Uh, Important initiatives, including the development of our climate smart land strategy, which will help use our lands to sequester carbon and build climate resilience, for example. Um, But the 30 by 30 goal was really the recognition that we need to protect nature in its natural state. We need these life support systems that um, support us. And the best way to do that is to conserve our uh, natural and working lands.
0: And how far along is it? We often hear, you know, grand visions of the future from politicians who may not be in office when when that date comes. So so how far along is the plan?
3: Well, what we've been doing this year is really developing our strategic framework for getting ourselves to 2030. So we've had uh, nine workshops around the state, getting people involved, asking them, what does conservation look like to you in your place? What are the challenges and opportunities for advancing cons- conservation in your region? We've been diving into some key topics related to the 30 by 30 goal, which include how do we advance equity in this space? Because our 30 by 30 goal encompasses not just biodiversity protection, but also building climate resilience and improving equitable access to nature. So we've been having those conversations this year, and we're developing a framework, which we will um, finalize in February 2022.
0: Catherine Semcer, Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts has called 30 by 30, quote, a land grab. Montana Senator Steve Daines dismissed 30 by 30 as an effort to, quote, lock up lands, which will hurt Montana's farmers and ranchers and kill jobs. How does that perspective sit with the ranchers and farmers you're talking with in rural states?
2: Well, I think, you know, we really have to look at 30 by 30 as a coming of age uh, of the conservation movement. You know, as Jennifer said, this is an effort to protect the life support systems on, on which we all depend. And what we've seen recently is, you know, the U.S. intelligence community in its most recent national threat assessment has identified ecological decline as a major danger facing the United States. And that really mirrors what we've also been hearing coming out of the financial sector for some time about ecological risk and the threat of loss of ecosystems and biodiversity um, and what they've you know, the threats they pose to business operations and, and the wider economy. Now diseases like COVID-19, which had its origins, you know, in, in wildlife, you know, is one example of, of those kinds of risks. And, and we've seen what they what they can do to the global economy. So, you know, I don't really see this as a job killer. This is something that's actually going to protect the economy by protecting the underlying goods and services um, that the economy depends on to thrive.
0: Right. And you worked previously with the Pentagon or at the Pentagon on that national security angle. You write, uh, Catherine, that conservation is not about rolling over rural communities or leaving landowners behind to meet the demands of the politically powerful. Instead, it's about cooperating with each other and reaching a consensus where everyone benefits. So how much consensus building do you see actually going on this time?
2: Not enough, you know. One one thing that I think we need to to be doing more of, um, both on the NGO side, the think tank side. You know, I'm from the think tank world, but especially coming from the Biden administration with this bold, ambitious initiative, is to get out into the communities that are going to be impacted and, and the communities that you know are on the front lines of of this risk and this danger, and start talking to them and, and start finding out about how they see um, the lands that they're currently stewarding, uh, being conserved into the future, and, and having those conversations.
0: Woody Lee, a, f- a lot of the fears of 30 by 30 are of a top-down approach where the government dictates whose lands is whose and what can be used for. Indigenous people have a long, painful, shameful history of land being taken, and yet the Navajo Nation has endorsed 30 by 30. What keeps you from fearing that this will be yet another such taking, you know, that there seems to be some trust that this time is different. The country is different now.
7: Here recently, uh, there's a bill that's called Respect Act. I think that might play a major role here down the road on how uh, government to government consultation, pre inform informed consent will probably take take its course, and hopefully that uh, that particular uh, phrase will continue to uh, go across the country, likewise in within the political arena. And we're looking through native lens on how and why uh, we believe that uh, being part of this uh, 30 by 30 would be in our better sense as well. So in our uh, society right now uh, here on Navajo, uh, we still practice a lot of our the way, our traditional ways of life. And we have made a few adjustments now that we are in a drought uh, with uh, there's hardly any uh, watershed or being dry and rivers real too low and, and everything else. so now we' uh, changed it to where we use drip systems and we start to uh, uh, use other other ways of uh, uh, getting land back into uh, to where it will sustain itself and at the same time with our population with here on Navajo is quietly increasing. so how do we sustain our communities and and, and still be uh, friendly to, the, to nature? The hunt for uranium, which that really uh, paid a toll on our water system. And right now where we are at, we can't even drink out of our artesian wells because you know, they're so high in heavy metals. And so uh, we have to do something and at the same time, protect what we have and, and preserve it for a younger generation in the future.
0: Uh, Catherine Simpser, you know, in April, U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack said absolutely no land will be taken from any farmer or rancher because of the 30 by 30 federal plan. He said he wants to incentivize farmers and ranchers to use the tools that he has at USDA to compensate farmers for being good stewards. You know, how do you see that you know playing out? I heard from one uh, land conservation person in Montana that the Biden administration is saying all the right things, but on the ground, it's a different story. When it gets to imp- actual implementation,
2: well, I think this is you know too too junior an effort at this point to really make a judgment about what's happening on the ground, um, with regard to what Secretary Vilsack said. He's obviously, you know, right right on the mark. You know, the USDA does have a lot of programs that can benefit farmers and ranchers in increasing their stewardship. You know, what I would encourage him to do, though, is also look at the non-governmental partners that USDA has. There's a lot of conservation groups that the, uh, the department and its agencies work with, and, you know, increase access to those non-governmental programs as well for landowners, and, and look for ways to, to expand those, those non-governmental programs as well as the programs that are administered through the Farm Bill and, and, and elsewhere.
0: Right. And Catherine, also, you know, the executive order calls for collecting input from private landowners. And I want to get Woody in on this, too. There's there's input and there there's consultation and there's consent. And there's quite a quite a debate about, you know, what is input and what is influence? You know, so how is that being how do you think that should play out in terms of input? Yeah, uh, you know, when does consultation become consent and approval of these kinds of things?
2: Well, you definitely need input, and you definitely need consultation, and you certainly need consent. But most importantly, what you need is engagement. You know, the the Biden administration, I would encourage them to engage the private sector as an equal partner in the thirty by thirty initiative. You know, much like climate, um, the 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 challenge of ecological degradation is so large and so vast. This is going to take a whole of society effort. It's not something that government can solve alone. So engaging the private sector, be it you know, individual landowners or large institutions is going to be absolutely critical to the the success of this initiative.
0: Woody Lee, you're focused on, on bears ears, which you know, President Obama established, President Trump shrank it. You know, where does that stand and, and how does that fit into the this conversation about consultation and consent?
7: I think it all begins with a neighborly invitation, from a human to human standpoint. I think that's where it needs to start from. And then from there, once the invitation is started, then uh, everybody's at the table and to start uh, start beginning with a clean paper and develop from there rather than having to come into a room and a document is passed upon, and then everybody reacts to it. That is not an invitation to begin with and that is not a, a participation at the begin with. Somebody had already drafted that and we have to work our way around it. So that would be a part of where... Uh, uh, being the, cons- the consultation would come in, and at the, everybody participates. So as of now, um, from UDP standpoint, that's why where, where I'm really adamant uh, changing the uh, and supporting the uh, Respect Act uh, within our and within our uh, government, Navajo Nation government. I'm really uh, waving that flag and saying that you know we need to be at the table during the, the beginning of anything that's going to affect our way of life here on Navajo or any uh, on any Native lands or any Native issues.
0: Catherine Semser, many farmers in the Midwest are wary of federal money coming in and distorting property prices, making it even harder to farm. Do you see that as a valid concern?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting that you raise the idea of federal money. And I think this is one place where the Biden administration's plan falls a little bit short. It definitely gets off on the right foot, you know, talking about the need to conserve private lands. You know, 60% of the United States is privately owned, 75% of our wetlands are in private ownership, more than 80% of our grasslands are in private ownership. It's essential to focus on private lands in terms of what America's conservation future looks like. Now, how do you fund it is a key question, and that's where I think the White House needs to go a little bit further um, with its planning. And I mentioned before the concerns of the financial sector, you know, when it comes to ecological decline, the loss of biodiversity, the degradation of ecosystems. And, you know, when I start looking at budgets, I see, you know, Department of Interior has, you know, a roughly $12 billion budget. Department of Agriculture has $151 billion budget, but of that, the Forest Service only has about $5.3 billion. And then I look at the financial sector and I see, you know, things like the Finance for Biodiversity Pledge, which has $10 trillion in assets under management. So, you know, rather than focusing on federal money, I, I think one thing we need to do is unlock the power of the private sector and really get the financial sector more involved um, in 30 by 30, in America, the beautiful, in American conservation.
0: Jennifer Norris what's California's approach to that? You know, we are like a big state with lots of public land. How much are you looking at sort of, you know, uh, public money, so to speak, versus the very large uh, financial markets that, uh, that, that Catherine just mentioned?
3: A lot of private land stewards are doing things right. And we want to incentivize that and reward that their their contributions to biodiversity protection and are, you know addressing the climate crisis, California has actually been fairly innovative in market incentives for conservation. You know we started the conservation banking movement here in California, where um, lands that are used to offset um, development are actually funded through private investment. They they purchase those lands, put an easement on them. Generally they're they continue to be working lands. Most of them are still in grazing here in the Central Valley. Um, and so those sort of innovative market mechanisms are already being explored. So I agree with Catherine. I think that, you know, public money is not going to be enough. We certainly, though, here in California, we had a, a, a very big year and we're looking to invest about two billion dollars in the in the budget this year in the California Comeback Plan uh, can be used to support our 30 by 30 activities, and that includes land acquisition as well as uh, private land easement work and restoration. So we're pretty excited about California's opportunity to, to move the ball on 30 by 30. But at the same time, we recognize that it's, you know, at the end of the day, conservation is um, locally driven and we want it to be voluntary. So we want to be partners.
0: Coming up, the necessary work of gathering input and consultation.
3: You need to get out into the communities and talk to people one-on-one. And I will say that when that happens, people are really able to get amazing things done.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. We're exploring the how and why of President Biden's goal to conserve 30 percent of the nation's land and water by 2030. My guests are Catherine Semser with the Property and Environment Research Center. Jennifer Norris with the California Natural Resources Agency, and Woody Lee with the Utah Dine Bekaya. Katherine Simser recently wrote, there's a backlog of 63 million acres of federal land that needs treatment to reduce wildfire risk. I asked her how the 30 by 30 vision is related to the frequency and intensity of wildfires that are ravaging the American West
2: you know, when it comes to reducing wildfire risk, you know, the first thing that comes to mind are initiatives like Blue Forest Conservation in California, you know, where you have elements of the financial sector working with water utilities to make sure that forests don't burn so that watersheds are are protected. And this is one of those security risks that, you know, we're really facing from, from ecological degradation. We've had Over a century of mismanagement of many of our forest lands, they're now choked with fuel. Um, While fire was a natural phenomenon historically, what we're seeing now is unnatural because of the management path we pursued over the past century. Um, And, you know, when these wildfires happen, you know, the watersheds that, that everyone depends on, you know, for drinking water, for commerce... Um, you know, can be severely impacted. We just saw a town in Colorado turn off the taps because their water supply had been poisoned um, as a result of wildfire. That's not something that we can afford to have replicate over the landscape. And so as we conserve lands, we need to make sure that um, we're stewarding them properly as well so that they continue to provide the goods and services that we are conserving them to provide.
0: You know, we th- we're talking about um, land conservation, which sometimes have a, has a sense of kind of, I don't know, putting a fence, locking some land away. And and uh, that's not the case. But there's an underlying, you know, relationship uh, with nature that I think informs us. And we heard uh, from some of this earlier in this in this episode. Um, and, you know, Woody Lee, I noticed that, you know, your values of your organization, you know, talk about the relationship, which is not a word we often hear. You know, we often think about, OK, set aside some land, let it alone and all's good. Keep people out. So, Woody, I'd like to hear, you know, how relationships with nature informs, you know, the, the values that for for a Navajo Nation.
7: You know, within our organization, uh, our main purpose is to yeah preserve the land uh, in the Bears Ears area. And with the reason why we are really adamant on preserving that is that is our our church. That's our cathedral. That's our medicine cabinet. That's our food source. You know, that's a lot of, within that particular small area, 1.9 million, uh, it's all of where our hunting, our food supply is, our grocery store. That's our fruit fruit source. And so within that, I think uh, not only Na- uh, Navajo, but other tribes uh, that have uh, those type of uh, connections to uh, Bears Ears area. So that's why we, we're not, um, closing the doors to the public, we were just want to educate the people that, hey, this is our, our home. This is our church. This is you know, where we uh, worship and where we heal. Going back to my younger days, um, here within my valley, uh, in my community, it was a hundred percent, uh, traditional way of thinking, traditional ways of doing things. And right now it's upside down to where we traditionally, there's only about maybe I don't know twenty percent because you know uh, the religion plays a major role in that. And now the eighty percent is Christian. However, you know, the, even though it's it's a Christian way of uh, changing, uh, but the actual underlying uh, understanding of taking care of the land is still there. And so there's uh, layers of how diverse our community and our people has gone uh, is making a a a. a a challenging—it's uh, making it very challenging uh, moving forward as a quote-unquote native or traditional way of doing things. And we we're starting to uh, mix and and be a little more diverse of uh, today's according to today's world. But uh, at the same time, uh, those that are the twenty percent, we do not want to blend into the world. We want to stay uh, a different color, if you will. Uh, we don't want it to be where it's all blended into one one color, just like what the people always say that, you know, this is a melting part of the world. We don't want to melt into the world. We want to stay uh, as an individual. So within that, you know, that's part of our preservation of taking care of the land.
0: Or a salad bowl, and a salad bowl, you can retain your identity in that salad and not melt into uh, the cultural soup. Uh, Jennifer Norris, how much is this effort of thirty by thirty, and and California, you know, obviously setting aside land, but how much of it, you know, is a is how much do we need to rethink our relationship with nature as we're trying to set aside thirty percent of it?
3: I think that's a really crucial part of the conversation we're having, and um, a lot of what motivates people to be part of thirty by thirty is that we're putting access to nature and all of its benefits for all of California at the center of what we're trying to accomplish we recognize that there are communities that don't have access to green spaces you know the COVID lockdowns a lot of people couldn't go more than a couple miles from their house and for some that meant they had no place to walk they had no access to nature at all and that's unacceptable you know we need to find ways to ensure everyone has the sort of life-affirming benefits of being part of nature, but also the health benefits. Trees and cities are beneficial for extreme heat and keep our air clean.
0: Jennifer Norris, Western states already have large tracts of federal lands, national parks, national forests, et cetera. A lot of the, imagine a lot of the land, you know, additional land to be conserved in California might be in in those areas. People already resent the portion of uh, land in federal control. So how's that going to be the balance that kind of, um, I guess, the the politics of that, you know, more land under government control in some very rural and conservative parts of California?
3: Well, I think, as I've said, you know, we're really interested in an all of the above strategy. You know, we, there are certainly opportunities to expand federal conservation, but I think um, the private sector, as Catherine has pointed out, you know, there's just a lot of really important landscapes that are in private lands, and we need to partner with private landholders to incentivize their conservation and the good work that they already do.
0: Does that run the risk of uh, one of the criticisms of some of the carbon offset programs is that landowners, often very wealthy, are getting paid through the cap and trade and offset programs to do things they were already planning to do. So it's like free money in your pocket. Uh, Is that a potential risk for some of these? You said these these private landowners are good stewards. Are they going to be then paid to do what they're already doing with taxpayer money?
3: Well, I think if we get long-term commitments to maintain natural lands in their good condition, I think that should be compensated. I think that you know we all benefit from that uh, land stewardship, and if you know there is a loss of revenue that's associated with that, I think that's something that we should all share. So, I, I think it's to our benefit to build those partnerships.
0: Catherine, you've written that or noted that federal conservation efforts of the past have fueled resentment of the government to the point of violent extremism. When that level of distrust is already so pervasive, what hope do you have that that public-private partnerships can can happen and not fuel some of the um, you know extreme reactions we've seen in Oregon and other places?
2: Well, this is where engagement and, and early engagement really comes into play. Um, you know, those who are supporting the 30 by 30 initiative, especially those in government, need to get into these communities, um, be speaking with these individuals who own this land, to make sure that they are very clear about what the intent here is. You know, the intent is not to take away anybody's private property. The intent is not to restrict anybody's economic activity. The intent is to reward good stewardship and and continue providing the goods and services our economy needs to to thrive. And, And I think if we do that, you know, then we get ahead of the conspiracy theories and um, the other things that that violent extremists will often take advantage of in order to to get a hold of a community.
0: So suppose the three of you were tasked with implementing thirty thirty across the United States. What, what what would you if you had a magic wand for making this happen? A pretty ambitious, I guess. We should get a baseline here that I don't know something like twelve percent of land is conserved now. We're trying to get to thirty uh, in a decade. I've read that the Percentage of protected waters is higher, and, and I've been I've been remiss in mentioning this. Also applies to water streams, and I think even, you know, and perhaps even oceans. So, so suppose uh, Jennifer, let's start with you. Sort of, if you had that magic wand. You know, what would the what would thirty by thirty implementation look like for land
3: and water? Well, I think in California we're doing it right. Um, a lot of what. Catherine and Woody have both been calling for is is really how we're trying to approach this is to establish the framework, identify the strategies that are successful, look at supporting those. But at the end of the day, as Woody said, you know, it's a neighborly conversation. That's how this implementation really works. And so you you need to get out into the communities and talk to people one-on-one. And I will say that when that happens, people are really able to get amazing things done. I've seen it happen in my experience here in California working with lots of people on the ground, you know, they want to take care of the land and they want to partner with you to to make a difference. And so, you know, it's difficult, I think, when you think about the whole country, you know, where do you begin? And so, you know, the Biden administration has put out their framework and their approach. And now the next step really is to engage with those communities across the country um, and, and really figure out how to what at the local level, you know, what are the priorities What are the obstacles and how do we overcome those together?
0: Woody, let's get you that America the Beautiful Plan has pillars that sound good. Local led, honor tribal sovereignty, honor private property rights, use science as a guide. How would you like to see 30 by 30 roll out, Woody?
7: I think uh, the first thing that needs to be done is uh, put everything on the table under lessons learned uh, through history. Um, based on that, we can I think we can make a direction on where we should be heading forward, uh, as all people uh, here within our country, and then uh, see if we can uh, be neighbors according to that from lessons learned.
0: But that's a very painful history, Woody. Frankly, that a lot of Americans willfully forget or never learned in the first place. Looking at history is pretty painful. It's not pretty. I, mean, I don't need to tell you that it's 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 a lot of people, a lot of people don't like to look at stolen land, stolen labor.
7: When Secretary Holland first visited our area here a couple of, several months ago, I mentioned to her that uh, uh, a lot of the trauma is still within a lot of native people. Uh, those those that actually have gone to boarding schools, and from there a couple of months later, you know how how how. That boarding school has been uh, exposed across the country and into Canada, and so and stuff. You know, there are many, just like I'm saying, just a whole bunch of stuff that uh, we have endured, and those are lessons learned. And we tell our kids, you know, we have, this is the history that we have. You will not hear or read this in any college books. That you know, it may have a paragraph here and there, and there's nothing really that like, that will draw the picture of what has really happened. So we fill in those gaps with our kids and grandkids in our native languages and uh, the, in our native thought, in the way we think, and which is totally different than uh, your basic, you know, your uh, everyday academic uh, lens. And so in that sense, you know, they our kids are really uh, learning that particular portion of it.
0: Catherine Simser, your ideas on how 30 by 30 could could roll out, if you could have your magic wand, what would you like to see to achieve this ambitious goal in nine years?
2: What I would add is is, is two things. You know, first, in in Washington, D.C., personnel is policy and how the Biden administration staffs up interior and agriculture. Um, is going to make a big difference about in whether this initiative succeeds or fails. And I would encourage them to maybe look beyond sort of the traditional appointments in terms of conservation and look to the people who have experience doing what Jennifer and, and Woody just laid out um, so that they can get out there and, and hit the ground running because we're, we're, we should have started this program yesterday. Um, you know, we're, we're behind the curve on this. Um, and, and then second, you know, in addition to rethinking our relationship with nature, I think we also need to rethink our institutions. You know, Whether they're public or private, most of our conservation organizations were established and given their missions in a different climate than the one that we have now, and certainly a different climate than the one that we're going to have in the future. So we really need to do some serious thinking um, at the institutional level about what we want the jobs of of both agencies and NGOs to be going forward and and make the necessary retoolings and and shifts that that have to be made um, so that we can continue to be successful going forward.
0: Willie really, Lee, as we wrap up, we've been talking about land, and I want to make sure that we, we, before we wrap up here, that we that we want to make sure that we touch on water because you know, water, rivers are the lifeblood of of uh, ecosystems, and, and and oceans often get overlooked. So tell tell us how water fits into this.
7: Right now, from a nation standpoint here on Navajo, uh, we are on a Navajo reservation, which a lot of the things that we do uh, every day depends on. Uh, whether or not it is okay with BIA or the, you know, the federal government. Now, in this instance, we speak of water. We cannot actually build dams to uh, uh, recharge our watershed. Uh, those are some of the policies that was meant, uh, Policies were mentioned uh, that really um, deters us from. Uh, self-sustaining uh, ways of thinking, uh, like building watersheds or recharging. How do we recharge that? And they to start building up small dams and, and, and get in those waters. And we just can't do that. So in that sense, you know, it's uh, those types of uh, strings that needs to be changed and uh, to where 30 by 30 would uh, make a difference uh, of how the government is denying us of taking care of our own land by denying us uh, certain access and certain ways of doing things to, uh, to advance our ways of thinking of taking care of the land.
0: Our thanks to Woody Lee, Jennifer Norris, and Catherine Semser for talking with us today on Climate One about the 30 by 30 ambitious plan to set aside 30 percent of America's lands and waters in the next decade. Thank you for coming on Climate One and sharing your insights.
3: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
7: My pleasure.
0: To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app. Talking about climate can be awkward and difficult. Sometimes it can be a conversation killer. But we need to talk about climate to understand it and address it. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help open up the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Arianna Brocious is our producer and audio editor. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox, Kelly Pennington, and Tyler Reed. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.